Welcome to the John E. Martin Mental Health Care Podcast Series. I'm Kareen Marquardt. And I'm Elle Wisnicki, and we are your hosts for the podcast today. Our guest is Newton Chang, Director of Global Health and Performance at Google and a Haas 2008 alumni. Outside of work, Newton is a husband, father, and competitive powerlifter. So, Newton, thank you so much for being here with us today. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Very excited to be here. So to kick us off, can you tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Where did you grow up? What led you to getting your MBA at Haas and then ultimately your role at Google? Yeah, so I'll, I'll start with where I'm currently at so that you can kind of see where the journey is going as I start to connect the dots. And so right now, as you mentioned, I'm a global director of health and performance at Google. I've been at Google for 13 years. And for all 13 of those years, when I introduce myself, I say that I'm the person with the funnest job at Google. And so I still believe it after 13 years. And so now let me show you how the the dots have connected. So I grew up in a small town in Illinois called Macomb, Illinois. And from there, I went to do electrical engineering at University of Illinois. And I honestly did not have a vision for my career. I was good at math and science. My sisters were electrical engineers and were my role models. And so I said, okay, I am just going to copy what my seemingly successful sisters are doing. And it seems like there's lots of opportunity as an electrical engineer. So I graduated. And what I found working as an electrical engineer was there were really great intellectual challenges, but then something just felt off in terms of alignment with my values. And what I could see was there was there were two things that now I know are actually risk factors for poor mental health that I had in my life. One was I had relocated from Illinois to Silicon Valley. And so I had poor social health, or I was rebuilding my community around me. And so I was a little lonely and isolated. And then the second thing was I felt a lack of connection to a greater sense of meaning and purpose in the work I was doing. Couple that with, you know, some shame and guilt for my cultural upbringing and, you know, my mental health as at the time, maybe a 24-year-old was not actually that good. At the same time, I always had a passion around health and fitness. And so not knowing where to invest to just improve my life, I, I really leaned in there. And so I got trained as a personal trainer to just explore that industry. And it was really, really rewarding. But what I found was like one instance that always comes up in my mind is I trained an elementary school teacher and he had to pay rates that were way too high for a teacher to pay in order to get support with health and well-being. It just told me that there should be a better way. And so I saw this opportunity in the corporate space where employers wanted their employees to be healthier. The employees wanted a better quality of life. So the incentives were aligned. And I decided, you know what, that's a business problem. That's not an exercise science problem. I was fortunate to get into Haas. And so in 2008, I went to Haas. I spent all the time I could focusing on learning about the health and well-being industry. And then from there, I found the role at Google. It was just very fortunate. And so since then, I've been able to grow our, our operations to global scale. We've expanded beyond more traditional services around health and well-being to a plethora of offerings across physical, mental, and social health. And then with the pandemic, we've now pivoted a lot of our services to digital format, which now gives us hybrid capabilities for reaching our users. That makes a lot of sense. And I would love to hear a little bit more about what that role in global health and performance really entails at Google. Like, What are some of the things that you and your team are responsible for? Yeah, so I'll start with the philosophy of our organization. And so it's that we're called health and performance for a very intentional reason. We're not health and well-being. What we know is there is a really big connection between a person's health and well-being and human performance. 
So we know that there's always this tension in the workplace between you know short-term performance and then managing your health and well-being. And we believe that by combining the science of these two areas, we can help both individuals and organizations be way more successful and to thrive in the long run. So that's why we're health and performance. What this looks like is that before the pandemic, we oversaw a large portfolio of over 80 staff fitness centers around the world, over 300 massage rooms around the world at Google, uh, a plethora of quieter unplugged spaces where you could go to either meditate or just to disconnect to work from work. And then we oversee a few community-driven programs such as our meditation or G-Pause community, as well as our health promotion community, which would be you want to take our programs and promote them within your team. Since the pandemic, we've had to pivot to digital And right now we're running about 400 digital offerings per week. And that can be classes and workshops, team breaks, or one-on-one consults and a variety of other offerings. Where I see this going in the future is the opportunity of how do we integrate like our superpowers in the real world of these amazing amenities Google has on site with now these digital offerings where we can reach you anywhere. And how do we make them into uh, one seamless service design? Yeah. You mentioned earlier that in your own personal journey, the importance of personal relationships and socialization and mental health became very clear to you. And obviously, with this COVID-19 pandemic, that's something that has become more challenging in our everyday lives. And then you also talked about how you've had to work to transition a lot of your offerings to be more digital and, and accessible. I'm wondering if you can share a little bit how you help facilitate that that social and personal relationship building when so many employees are moving to a more remote work environment. Yeah, so I'll say the transition to digital, it's helped us reach people in in new ways, but then now there's a new tension of being always on the screen. So in terms of reaching people in new ways, before most of our services, they ran through something like a fitness center, a sports field, a group exercise studio, a massage room. And so you kind of come with, your offering has a certain framing. Oh, I can participate in your community, but I got to go in the sweaty, stinky gym. Not that our gyms are stinky. We have very good cleaning, but gyms are not appealing to everyone. Massage is not appealing to everyone. What we found with digital was one, not only could we reach people through a variety of different programs, like we've had talent shows, we've done dance, we've done cooking classes, and we can do that much more flexibly through digital channels, but we can now reach right into your home. So we hear these awesome stories about not only the Google employee, participating, but their son or their spouse or their their grandparent, which is something that was just really hard for us to do before was to engage them. And that's just a wonderful thing. Issue now is that we all know the issues around the fatigue of video chat, of being on constant calls all day, and how the number of calls and the duration of calls has actually increased if you look at a variety of studies. So on the one hand, we can do some new, really interesting things for your health and well-being via digital. On the other hand, we know it's a really fraught way to deliver services right now because of that fatigue. I resonate with that because my partner has actually partaken in some of the Berkeley virtual classes that he wouldn't have otherwise been able to do. So it's exciting to hear that Google employees have also found that, that hidden benefit. That is awesome. Yeah, good for them. I think a little bit about convincing leaders in this space to you know, do these incredible wellness opportunities. How do you think about return on investment in this space? I've heard companies you know, not want to add more mental health and wellness due to financial reasons or not understanding or believing in the return on investment. Can you speak a little bit to how you think about that, maybe at Google as well as different companies in the space? 
Sure. So I'll talk about my emerging beliefs on ROI within this space and how I see them differently from how this would be traditionally done within corporate health and well-being programs. So the more traditional approach is to peg your ROI on if you run these programs, do you see reduction in things like that are measurable like healthcare claims? And now which healthcare claims you want to actually affect? Like, for example, pregnancies are very expensive. Does a company want to run a campaign to reduce pregnancies in their population? Probably not. You know, we want people to have families. So you have to start looking at what are like the modifiable risks and you start to boil down to things like lifestyle factors that lead to obesity, musculoskeletal issues, and then other lifestyle factors that might lead to poor mental health. The difficulty in getting behavior change around those lifestyle factors and then the amount you can claw back from healthcare claims is, in my opinion, could be considered relatively small, especially on, say, Google scale. So what is the bigger opportunity? The bigger opportunity I see is, first, there is a huge body of research, which I'm sure you're learning about in your organizational behavior classes, where there's a huge relationship between organizations' core business strategy and their culture and how those things support each other and make the business successful. Over here, we've talked about the science of the connection between health and well-being and then human performance. And so how by improving someone's health and well-being, you can improve their performance across a variety of contexts. As far as I've been able to find, there's no marrying of these two bodies of science in a deep way that would tell an organization, hey, if there's a tremendous upside in improving the performance of, of the individuals in my organization, the teams, and the overall organization via health and well-being, how should I connect that into my culture? And how should that culture support my core business strategy? That's the huge ROI I see, where if I'm talking about organization the size of Google, clawing back healthcare claims costs is on the order of millions. If I talk about a percentage performance bump across all the individuals in an organization like Google, that puts us into talking about billions of value. So that's where I feel like the conversation needs to go. There's a lot of research and connecting the dots that need to be done across different bodies of research, but it's a massive opportunity. Thank you so much for explaining that. And that really reminds me of measuring success with these programs, of course, in the return on investment space, but also success for your employees, your leadership, and the company as a whole. Are there specific metrics that you use when measuring success for these programs and services? Yeah, a lot of it angers to just pure engagement, which is not the best metric, if I'm honest. So what would happen is, let's say you're going to launch an intervention. Let's say I'm, I'm launching a campaign to reduce low back pain. What I would do is I'd evaluate the intervention, like the research that's been done on it in other contexts to say, like, is this effective in other contexts? So now I kind of see a range of possible outcomes for both at the individual and then the aggregate level across my organization. Then we would launch it and see how many people can we get to engage in this and then we might do kind of like spot checks in terms of measuring the outcomes of it. Because we, this being a corporate environment like Google, where data privacy is one of the top of mind issues of the entire company, we can't just wholesale collect data of what's going on with our own employees like that. So there's a lot of opt-in. There's a lot of other ways to collect data, such as doing interviews to get more qualitative research. 
And then all this is synthesized where we'd say, if we know these are what the research-based outcomes of this intervention should be, we know we have this engagement, and then we know we have these stories from inside our own programs as to what is going on. Now we can feel pretty confident whether we're achieving success with this program or not. Now, in aggregate, we have measures that are launched across the Google population that look at, you know, again, things like healthcare claims costs, self-report indicators of health and well-being. And so we're always looking at for the sum of all of our efforts, are we moving the needle on those? And on a similar vein, I completely agree that it's engagement is the base level. Are your employees engaged? Are your employees excited about these programs? Do they feel good about them? Are they excited to work at your company because of them? But there's more underneath that. And I think as companies develop more resources in the space, they can you know, continue to consider what success looks like and what they want success to look like, right? That just kind of makes me think of the opposite. Are the biggest reasons that employee wellness programs fail? And what are some of the indicators of whether it will fail or succeed? I could probably go on for hours on this. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> Partially because I have strong opinions and partially because we've failed in a variety of ways internally on on my watch. That's how we learn. It's never pleasant, but that's how we learn. I think a few things. One is catering to your power users. So on the one hand, if you kind of put it there and see who engages, let's say I build a fitness center on site. Unless I am really careful about the experience and making inviting to all, you end up with fitness power users in there who... Honestly, depending on the way that they show up in the fitness center can be pretty intimidating to other people who might want to use the fitness center. If you have the person who's covered in muscles and grunts really loud and takes up a lot of space, they will drive out a lot of people who are maybe just considering using the fitness center. And so you have to carefully consider like, I want a place for them, but I want a place for everyone else. And how do I create a good experience for both? So that's one thing is making sure you don't cater to your power users. Another thing is thinking about sponsorship in your organization. When you're talking about pushing any initiative, whether it's health and well-being or not in an organization, like who has your back and in what part of the organization? So if, for example, if I am walking around Google with a bullhorn saying something's important, some people might listen. If Sundar, our CEO, says it, I think everyone's going to listen. So I think it's a question of, What leaders can you get to authentically engage and support your message and what you're trying to do? Another thing that I think can break down is working with a corporation. So like, let's say I'm trying to bring outside solutions in. There are so many amazing technologies and innovative solutions for improving health and well-being out there. It doesn't mean that it's easy to implement at scale within a corporation. So I think I've learned a lot from watching how, say, B2B software is sold. And so it would be to be software, you have salespeople who understand who's the buyer inside the organization, when in their budget cycle are they going to consider buying a new program or soft piece of software in that case, what's it going to take for them to deploy it across the organization, drive change management, make it successful, and then how much capacity is it going to take them to manage this thing ongoing? If I worked for Oracle and I was trying to sell to another company, that's how I might show up. However, what happens with a lot of health and well-being service providers, they show up with, I have the most amazing solution. And following the science of health and well-being, it is. Following what I know is needed to deploy something across an organization, all the rest of that stuff is missing. Yeah. I know a lot of our viewers, when we think about Google, we think about data. And I would love to hear if there was a time when the data 
that you all were looking at for metrics of success or, or other data you were looking at challenged an early assumption you had about a program? I'll give one which is not health and well-being related. So my wife works for Apple and has worked for them for a while. And when she started, they were about to launch iTunes. And at the time, all the other music streaming services used the buffet model, which is like pay one fee, you can stream all the songs you want. Apple shows up with the iPod, which is way more expensive. And then this model of I'm going to sell you one song at a time. And I said, I think this is a dumb idea that won't work. And so now I like to remind myself, like, you could not have been more wrong. You know, you had your MBA and you were still really, really wrong on that. Just a side story that keeps me humble, especially as we think about health and well-being offerings, where I think it's even less clear. I think one thing that has surprised me, especially as we went into digital, our team, you know, suddenly the programs they were running in the real world were gone. And so they were all freed up to just try things. We started launching a program called Move and Breathe where it was, hey, just for 10 minutes, you can call in, you'll be guided through an experience where you do some breathing exercises, you do some quick movement exercises, so you get out of your seat, and then you go on with your day. I thought that would be maybe a cute program that some people tried for a while, then it would fall off. What I found was ongoing engagement with that, especially in this work from home context, seems fairly sustainable. Whereas like on site, I don't know that people would want to engage that way. But now what I didn't understand about user behavior was, okay, if we're all isolated at our desks and then I offer you something that's a break that fits into the flow of how you're working all day, that actually works pretty well. So that's one thing. And then the thing I really didn't expect was that people started asking, hey, can you come in and do this before I kick off this large meeting? And so now we were getting to do a 10-minute break at the beginning of a meeting for 10, 50, or 100 people. And so that, that was the other thing that I, I needed to pivot on my mental model was before when we did in-person experiences, we'd be happy if 20 people showed up, but I hadn't really seen the infinite scalability of our digital channel. And so because I, I had those underlying assumptions that really are brought from the real world to digital that I didn't take note of in my head, I didn't see the upside possibility of this program until the data came back. Thank you for sharing that example. And it's always healthy to be reminded to look to other sources and be willing to be challenged and proven wrong. I know that uh, you do competitive weightlifting in your own time. I would love to hear a little bit about what you think about the relationship between physical and mental wellness and how that translates to the work you do with employees at Google. I think it is massively connected. So I prattled off this framework of physical, mental, and social health. And we take that from the World Health Organization. And the reason I hit those three points is because it's an easy way to just paint a fairly holistic picture of health and well-being. However, the truth of it is that we only boil it down to a bulleted list because it's easier to talk about. The mindset that these things are separate is false. So I actually like there's a framework from a guy named Dan Siegel, who is a thought leader, etc., on well-being and mindfulness. And so his framework, it's called the triangle of well-being, where he talks about brain, which is really your whole physical existence. So it's not just the hardware that's your brain, but it's interaction with your body. And for those of us who are using different models, we might call that, oh, that's physical and mental health. We're like, no, that's actually not quite correct. So one side of it is just like, let's call it the physical machinery of your existence. And he calls that brain. The other point in the triangle is mind. And so separate from the physical existence of your body, mind is your thoughts and your perception of what's going on with both you and the relationship with the external world. 
And so in the last part of this triangle, which is not actually you, but you can't be separated from, is relationships. So how do you relate to others in our environment? And how do you relate to the environment itself? And that relationship is going to dramatically affect how we think about our lived experience. So now if I work backwards, if your relationship to others affects your perception of your lived experience, that affects your mind. And if your mind, now you have a different perception, that's going to have physical effects on what he calls brain or your brain and body connection. So that's how I think of it. It's all connected. And the us stating it like it's separate is actually just a way for us to simplify. I'm glad you actually mentioned the relationship component as well. That was a piece that I had forgotten even in my question. We've seen a lot of change in the wellness space over the last few years, especially with this pandemic really accelerating some of those changes. And I was, would love to ask, what direction do you see Google and similar tech leaders going in the next five years? Where do you think wellness or employee wellness will be? So I think more conventional programs where it looks like support for specifically usually physical fitness, what, what would be called physical fitness. And these look like mind, lifestyle behaviors like more exercise and either weight management programs or as has been framed more recently, plant forward diets. Not that's a weight management program, but I've seen the language pivot from people talking more about weight management to the quality of what you're eating. So those have been a given for years at companies like Google and our peers. Probably in the last five years, you've seen this rise of the mindfulness practice where we've seen like, okay, we know there's a connection between mind and body. Are there things we can do or offer to help people more directly take care of their mind? And mindfulness has been one of the big topics around that. I've seen that with the rise of wearables, this has been accompanied by an increased awareness of the importance of movement and also recovery. And that's starting specifically with sleep, because I think that's probably the easiest thing to measure. But then as you start looking at things like heart rate variability and some of the algorithms from a company like Whoop, they're looking at how, what are some other ways that we can measure accumulated stress and how you're recovering from that accumulated stress. So I think especially as mental health gets worse, not just at Google, but we're seeing it you know, pretty much everywhere, I think thinking about stress, how you manage it and measure it is going to become increasingly important. And then I think the last place where we were talking about digital services and the opportunity with scalability, what I've seen lately is the really interesting telehealth apps that do a really elegant service design combining the touch of a human practitioner and supporting them with technology so that I think there's less load on the human practitioner and they can focus on the relationship and coaching. The end user gets more guidance, whether it be from the human or from AI or algorithms on the app. And then you can keep more continuity of connection between the, the human practitioner and the user. And the, the outcomes achieved from some of those, it's pretty interesting, like versus real world services. That is extremely helpful. And just have really appreciated learning more about your experience as a wellness leader. And with that, I want to transition a little bit here. An important focus of our podcast is to highlight diversity, equity, and inclusion, especially um, as people from diverse backgrounds are impacted by mental health and wellness differently and may benefit from services catered to their unique backgrounds. How you incorporate goals around improving equity in your wellness offerings, for example, addressing problems that are more relevant in certain communities than others, if you can speak to that. Yeah, so I'll say within, say, the Google population uh, amongst our full-time employees, we lean towards 
higher socioeconomic levels if, if we zoom out and look across society. So we have one set of offerings you know, for the employees, mainly for the employees. Now, if I think about the larger Google ecosystem where we have a large workforce of, say, on-site vendors who are involved in things like our food program, our fitness programs, our security or transportation programs, they might be at another socioeconomic level. And so we work closely with all the vendors we bring in to make sure we have certain standards about how they're taking care of their employees. And so while they're not Google employees, so we don't directly manage their health and well-being offerings, we can make sure that we are partnering with organizations who have these things in mind. And then I think the thing that we're really trying to think carefully about is as Google does larger and larger scale commercial real estate development, what we find is that we can't just think about designing a building or a campus or a neighborhood. You really need to think about designing at district scale with both a public health and an urban planning lens. So we know, for example, the things that we plan if we're designing a district will not only affect our employees who happen to work at the district, but even more so the people who live in and around that district. And now you have to start considering, like, how does what we design affect the social determinants of health for the people in and around that district? And so while that is not something that, say, lives in programs that I would offer, we now have this new opportunity to say, hey, there's a lot of leverage here to make life better for a lot of people while also meeting the goals of Google as a business. And I think that's a wonderful opportunity. I'm so glad you brought that up. I'm actually taking a human rights in business course here at Haas. Um, And we talk a lot about what responsibility companies, especially large companies, well-resourced companies have to their local communities. You see it time and time again at different companies where the impact to the local community, especially to the marginalized groups in those communities, is negative, frankly. And it's really complicated because we're advancing technology in one way, but then we're not always considering the ethical implications um, downstream. So I'm so glad you brought that up. I want to ask, as you spoke a little bit about partnerships and vendors that you work with, what are some of the biggest challenges when finding and choosing partners and vendors for wellness solutions, especially as it pertains to DEI, but more broadly as well, even you know, in your example regarding building new centers? I'll call back to what I said previously about for a, say, wellness vendor showing up more as a B2B solutions provider versus, you know, like I understand this aspect of health and well-being really well and I've built a point solution. So I think there's that whole thing, like, have you built the enabling functions and features you need to make something successful as a B2B offering? So I think that's one really big one. As applies to DEI, I think, one, finding diverse suppliers who can do what we need to at Google scale. So there's this chicken and egg issue where are there enough diverse suppliers who are big enough? But then on the other hand, you're like, would be if you give them the opportunity because they're they're up and coming. Now this question of we need stability in the business versus where are we going to make a proactive investment? And so I think what we're trying to do is identify like who might be those up and comers. Where can we make those investments and give them a chance to like take over more and more of our portfolio? Right now, I think we're trapped in that chicken and egg. And so it's going to take some time, but we're going to continue to try to source diverse suppliers and then make proactive investments in them. How do you think about partner culture fit to align with different worker populations within Google? I think about two things. One is localization, and then the other is fitting the Google culture, which while we're a very big company, I think there's still a consistent thread that spans our company around the world. 
In terms of localization, I think a, a really interesting case study is to think about the Asia-Pacific region. So the way that many companies divide up their geographies, you'll have, you might have North America, Latin America, Europe, Middle East, and Africa, and then Asia-Pacific. Now, for those people who manage or work across the Asia-Pacific region, you know you might have up to dozens of different cultures that you need to manage to. So for example, I'm half Filipino and I'm half Chinese. They're both in APAC, but could I launch the same program in China that I could in the Philippines? It's not a really vanilla program, like absolutely not. So I think there's that part of it is like, depending on what we want to do and where, does this provider actually get the culture of the local populace? So that's one side of it. And then there's the Google side of it. So Google itself, we're trying to find partners who can, again, grow with us, be with us for the long run. And we don't want just a transactional relationship, if possible. We, we're really looking for someone who can innovate with us. So Google, it's very decentralized and messy. Because of that, we can be challenging to work with at times. But it also prevents many emergent opportunities where if the, the partner is similarly agile to Google and driven by innovation, we can seize a lot of emerging opportunities. Like, for example... My current main vendor partner is a company called Exos that oversees all of our health and fitness offerings. At the beginning of the pandemic, we had a tough decision wherein at the end of March, they said, okay, you're going from 80 fitness centers and 300 massage rooms, which is where the bulk of your services lie, to zero. You still have responsibility for serving the 100,000 plus Google employees around the world. How are you going to do it? And so credit to Exos, they were able to go on this journey with us and say, okay, we know we need to reach them. What are our opportunities? We know we got to go digital because at the beginning of the pandemic, we were heavily socially isolating. And then from there, it was what tools are available? How do we stand this up operationally? How do we launch and iterate? And Exos has a culture that matches that, where they can pivot, they can try things, they can innovate. If this were a company where what they really did was they had really stable, mature offerings and they delivered those at scale really well, but they can't diverge from that, that would have been a really big problem when the pandemic hit. We probably would have just grinded to a halt. How do you either think about or make sure that those partners represent diverse backgrounds so that your employees at Google who are accessing these services see people like them represented when maybe they go to select a therapist, a wellness coach, or what have you? I can speak most directly for my own programs, but I'm part of a team that runs a larger portfolio of programs that follows similar philosophies. So dialing back, let's say, eight years, there's a lot of talk within the health and well-being industry. And if I move away from the healthcare side of it, even just like, let's say, in the fitness industry, there is a diversity problem where if you look at your practitioners, you look at the marketing, people of color are just not heavily represented. And so what we've been able to do over the last few years, and it was actually accelerated by the pandemic because some of our team decided this was a good time to move on because they had geographical flexibility. Say they moved out of the Bay Area, discovered that uh, real estate is affordable other places. And so we had the opportunity to rebuild our team. At the same time, because of the discussions around diversity that we had been having with our vendor, mainly Exos, they had been building relationships with more of the exercise science programs, specifically in the Bay Area. And so what that looked like was the sourcing of candidates. Suddenly, there were a lot more people of color. And so 
inadvertently because the pandemic, we had heavy turnover. Our team shifted from not very many people of color to, I believe, over half people of color in the Bay Area. And that normally would have taken a few years. And I think we were on the right track. It accelerated because of the pandemic. And I think the outcome is going to be really positive for our community. I love that. And wanted to transition a little bit now about your work with Google and the work you do with employees to a little bit about you as Newton Chang. So as we mentioned at the start of our program, you are a Haas alumni. Thinking back on your Haas experience, can you share one or two Haas learnings that impact the way you approach your work today? I think one was, I didn't realize how arrogant I was. (laughs) Probably still don't, but Arriving at Haas was a good wake-up call where I came from working as an engineer. Everyone who sat around me in in this cubicle farm, it was like electrical engineering PhDs as far as the eye could see. And so I don't have a PhD, but I had to learn to hang with them. So, you know, I was investing in a certain set of competencies within engineering. When I got to Haas, it was just so clear I had an incomplete lens. Like I remember our first marketing class, we were talking through a case study of which product should win. And I, like, this sounds really bad. I honestly couldn't understand why the product with the best technical specs didn't win. (laughs) And so seeing that, seeing my classmates who were expert in these other disciplines like marketing, and then more importantly, seeing them show up as leaders and influencing each other in many different ways other than, say, technical arguments, and at the same time, building relationships with them. So seeing these people who were so capable that I knew had this deep love and respect for, it changed my perspective on, I think, what humans are capable of and how they can achieve success in business in life. It was just much, much broader. Building on that, I almost didn't make it all the way through the Haas experience without my career search to something that would have been easier than health and well-being. But it was really my friends who held me accountable saying, hey, you inspired us with that story when you showed up with your (laughs) essay, the saying like you were going to do things in health and well-being and we're all cheering for you, but you better not give that up. And so I didn't. And I think I was one of the last people in our class to find a full-time offer. But I think I've been in that role for maybe the longest in our class because I am, again, I have the funnest job at Google. And then I think the last thing that, again, this is me with an arrogance problem. As a newly minted MBA, I show up with Google at Google and, you know, the MBA gives you this really broad set of tools and they try to puff up your confidence a little bit, you know, for good reasons. But if you think about it, like each of those tools, they're all really different, whether it's marketing, analytics, brand, financial management, they're each different tools and each of those, the 10,000 hour rule applies. So it's like, I have a crash course, but I don't have expertise really. And so those first few years, it was really figuring out like, okay, which of these do I either have a knack for or a desire to become expert in? And so I figured out my superpowers, I leaned into them, and then at the same time, it took me some time to figure out where in the organization they needed those superpowers. And so once I went through this extra phase of getting knocked down a peg, finding my way, and then finding the right opportunities, things started to accelerate. But really what had to happen was, yeah, I had to fail a lot first. Then second, I had to decide what are my superpowers and what are not. And then I had to get over myself and start telling people like, here's what I'm good at, here's what I'm not and be okay with it shutting me out of some opportunities because it meant that people started funneling me to the opportunities that really fit with my superpowers and where I was happiest. 
One of the things I've loved about getting to, to speak with you today is that your passion for health and wellness is, is clear and, and really infectious. I'd love to hear about how you think about and prioritize wellness in your own, you know, very multidimensional personal life with work, family, other hobbies you have. How do you think about that balance? Earlier, I talked about how there's dangers in boiling things down to bullet lists. I'm going to try to boil my life down to a bullet list. And so there's basically three big buckets I think in. There's my family and friends, there's powerlifting, which is what I compete in, and then there's work. And I try to prioritize them in that order. And the reason is that I know the way that I'm wired, work is going to keep trying to claw its way up the hierarchy, not for the wrong reasons. Like so much of what we work on, I'm really passionate about, and it's going to be really great for the world as we succeed over the long run. But it's such an incredibly powerful pull. However, I know that if things were to fall apart with my family and friends or I were to damage those relationships, that would be the most catastrophic thing. That would be worse than getting fired. So I try to remember, put the first thing first. And conversely, I know when I'm on my deathbed, my investment in those relationships is the only thing that's going to matter. Now, why is powerlifting sandwiched in between? Because that's a sport that no one cares about and no one will pay me for. I see it in two sides. One is like by making this commitment to doing this thing that only I care about, but trying to do it at the highest level possible. One is all the health and well-being stuff because of the connection between health and well-being and human performance. It's got to be on point. So I can't let my sleep go. I can't get let my nutrition go. I got to do my training and I got to manage my stress. And that doesn't mean that I have it on point every day, but I got to have more good days than bad days or it's not going to work out. The second reason I do it is it's a practice of mastery. Where like, yeah, I'm doing work, but it's really hard at any given moment at work to tell like, what am I improving? Am I not? What am I getting better at? Powerlifting is a fairly structured sport. There's just three lifts, squat, bench, deadlift. Can I squat, bench, or deadlift more than I could yesterday or over the long term? And that's it. There's a a quote from a, he was a Japanese swordsman, uh, Miyamoto Musashi. And it was something to the effect of, to know 10,000 things, know one thing really well. And so what I've discovered is I've invested more and more in powerlifting. And at first I was doing it with friends. And then the friends are like, we're out, like you're getting far too into this. Doing something for an extended period of time, getting really good at it, it forces you to keep asking, why am I doing this? And finding meaning and purpose in it and finding how is this going to fit in your life or how is it not? And so by all those deep reflections and having to walk this really long road and look around and say, I don't know where I'm at anymore. People who were with me before, they're not with me anymore. Do I want to keep going? And having that conversation over and over has created so much clarity in my life. I'm really glad that you talked about powerlifting because it's a, a, a space that I personally don't know as much about. And I'm curious to know like, what got you started in powerlifting and what inspired you to compete and try and compete at those highest levels? In my 20s, So my practice of mastery was breakdancing and that was super fun and I wasn't good, (laughs) but I was good enough to learn to do some power moves like I could spin on my head, which was pretty awesome. But then in my early 30s, like my body was rejecting it and saying, please stop, like we got to move on. And so at that point I said, okay, I'll stop, but I got to keep in shape. And so for a few years, I just, I tried boot camps, I tried other forms of dance. One day I tried a CrossFit class. And I tried deadlifts, which for those who don't know, deadlift is basically if there's a barbell on the ground, you just pick it up and stand up. 
And I weigh about 135 pounds and I deadlifted 300 pounds, which I was like, hey, that's pretty good, I think. And then I thought, what's the world record on this? So I went on YouTube and I found this guy named Richard Hawthorne, who at the same body weight was deadlifting 600 pounds for repetitions. And so I thought, one, my, my brain blew up because the numbers just don't make sense. Like, how can a human do that? But then two, I thought, well, why couldn't I do that? There seems to be a lot to learn here. What if I just started walking the path? And so I just started training. I found out I really enjoyed it. As I kept at it, I started to win meets. Like it went from like just participating to suddenly I'm winning. Suddenly I'm starting to set state records and I'm setting national records and then I'm winning national championships. And so now I'm at a point where I'm three-time national champion, one-time world's bronze medalist, and then I have a bunch of national and state records. I never thought I'd get this far. But each time you achieve one of those, like it, it's this interesting reflection point of go me, pat on the back. Do we want to keep going? This is pretty far. This is further than you ever thought. Do you want to keep going? And each time it's a good moment to say a strong yes to, to recommit because like, yes, I still think I'm capable of more. And yes, I still feel like I'm getting life lessons from this. Thank you for sharing that, your story. Our listeners, I'm imagining, will be at various different stages in their own personal wellness journeys. Do you have any advice to give to listeners who may be at kind of the start of their journey, just starting to reprioritize wellness and feeling a little bit intimidated? I think I would go back to the Dan Siegel triangle of well-being and say like, one, do you have meaningful relationships in your life? And then two, do you feel like you have meaning and purpose? Is there something or at least some strong pull to say like, I think I know why I'm here. If you have those two things, Everything else you can start will fall into place by designing in support of those two things. It's not a given. It'll take work. That's a really great foundation to build on. For you to live a full life, I think you probably need those things. So that's one thing for, for people to figure out. If you're not ready to go there and you're like, I just want to feel better today, the most direct things would be sleep more, drink more water, eat more plants, eat less processed food, and then in the moment, take some deep breaths, go out for a walk. And if you feel better, then do it again. And if you feel better again, then try to take it to the next level. And luckily, there's a wonderful platform called YouTube with plenty of influencers to help you do that. All right. Well, I think that's as good of a note to end it on as any. Newton, thank you so much again for joining us. Really, really appreciate the time and insights that you shared with us today. Happy to do it. Thank you for having me. This was very fun. I learned so much and have so many questions <laughs> and <laughs> much more to learn, honestly, and for my own career journey and personal journey as well. Um, going to Haas really helped me prioritize my own wellness, which is interesting to say as an MBA student, but I haven't had the space to not work full time in a really long time. And I have realized, like you said, the part you said about when you're on your deathbed, who are the people that are going to be around you? I think about that all the time. Who are the people I want to prioritize? Because people are with me hopefully a lot longer than the individual job roles I have. Absolutely. I hope you have an amazing career, but I hope you have more amazing people in your life than that. Yes, absolutely. Thanks again for tuning into this episode of the John E. Martin Mental Health Care Podcast miniseries. This miniseries is part of the Here at Haas podcast. We welcome you to tune into other Here at Haas episodes to hear about different happenings across the Berkeley Haas community. We know that everyone is in a different stage in their own mental health journey, and that's okay and even beautiful. 
please be kind to those around you and we encourage you to care for yourself in the way that feels best for you. We hope you enjoyed our show and welcome you back soon.